Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Disruptive Storytelling is sponsored by the Modern Military Association of America. Founded in 1993, MMAA is the nation's largest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing fairness and equality for the LGBTQ military and veteran community. Learn more about what the changemakers at MMAA are up to at modernmilitary.org. Our guest today is Dr. Ina Shayette. She is the Dean of Social Work for the University of Georgia. Before joining UGA, Dr. Shiet served as the Dean of the College of Social Work at the University of South Carolina, and previously as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Social Work. Her experiences also include clinical and administrative positions in community mental health services. Additionally, Dr. Shiet holds degrees in biology and human genetics. Her background in both the natural and social sciences supports her longstanding interest in improving services and promoting recovery for those with severe mental illnesses. She has researched this subject for more than 25 years, and we are thrilled to have her share her expertise with us today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Anna Shayet, and she is going to share with us her research on what she's learned about stigma in her role as a social worker and studying the field of social work and how we can understand what goes into stigma, as well as the process of shame and all these other feelings that are kind of lumped in. But first, I I wanted to just welcome you. Thank you for coming in, uh, Dr. Shayet. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. One way we kind of met is you were featured on a podcast, and I will put a link to that podcast when you were back at at UNC um, and you did a presentation. And I think that that presentation was geared uh, towards social workers. But I think in today's time that it's so useful for us as we're having these open conversations about how to see differences in each other and embrace them to have this conversation as a lay person. I'm excited to learn from you and to learn a little bit more about stigma. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you began that research process? Sure. For me, I started out as a practicing psychiatric social worker working with people who had pretty severe mental illnesses. So firsthand, you could see the stigma that people were experiencing. And that's what got me interested in learning more about it and learning more about it as a process and learning about what we can do about it. And as my research has evolved over time, looking at different vulnerable populations, so people with mental illnesses, and I've done some work with people in criminal justice, and now I'm doing some work on um, farmer stress 
The issue of stigma keeps coming up over and over again as that being one of the biggest barriers to people getting what they need. So it's been an ongoing thread in all of my work. Yeah, and we we know um, in the military community that there is an underlying stigma in a variety of different areas of life, whether that is where you came from, whether that's your gender or your sexual preference, any number of factors can contribute to stigma. First, I think we should just take a step back and kind of understand what is stigma, either that both the history and what we know about it today. Sure. I like to think about it as kind of a process, which quite frequently goes off semi-consciously. People aren't even aware that it's happening. But stigma originally, it's an old Greek word and it meant a mark, like a brand. So it was a sign that was put on somebody's body indicating that they were somehow discredited. You did that to slaves, you did that to traitors or criminals. So stigma is this metaphor for people who have a particular attribute, whether it's skin color or a disability or anything you wanna think of, a mental illness. And that attribute is decided by society to be something salient. We're gonna circle that one, that's different. And everybody who has that gets a label. And so people get kind of lumped and categorized by this one attribute. And then once these people are labeled and categorized and put in a lump, then it's really easy to start associating negative stereotypes with them. People with certain look are a certain way. People from a certain country are all like X, those kinds of stereotypes. And it makes it really easy to differentiate. That's them and this is me. So it's easy to separate people that way. And people start being seen as nothing more than the negative stereotypes associated with their labels and it reduces their level of humanity. And you hear that sometimes even in the language we talk about, you hear people who are defined by their illness. I'm not somebody with epilepsy, I'm an epileptic. I don't have schizophrenia, I am a schizophrenic where that label absorbs their whole identity. And then that negative stereotype that's associated with having schizophrenia puts the person lower in a status hierarchy and makes them more vulnerable. And then that is used to predict performance. This is what they're going to do. Oh, we know that all people who are schizophrenic are violent, you know, that kind of thing. And define the actions that are acceptable and unacceptable for them to have. So if you're identified as X, well, we can't ever let you take care of children because you're not safe or anything along those lines. It's these sweeping generalizations and it ends up excluding people from things that they have a right to. And it's really insidious. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is that you can try and make a law, like laws against discriminating against housing. Well, the law is great, but unless you address the stigma, the discrimination just seeps out in other ways. So we really have to kind of head on tackle stigma and discrimination and this idea of differentiation and stereotype because otherwise people are put in a really one down power position and don't have access to the things that all human beings ought to have access to. Yeah. And I know in your talk, you did 
say that when these labels and and we say labels, labels seem to to imply like that they can be removed. And often some of these characteristics are something that is a person might be born with and that they can't remove. And especially that idea of a brand or a mark, it's a permanent label. It's not something that we put on and off each day. It's something that is part of who we are, which is maybe the difference between, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I just having heard what you've said, Mm -hmm. the difference between stigma and maybe just a stereotype. You know, I could dye my hair. I'm a blonde person. I could dye my hair brown. And that stereotype of the dumb blonde could, you know, be gone. I could hide that about myself. But other things like stigma like this, it's it's something permanent. But going back to when we use these labels, when we use these terms, there's a power dynamic there. And and how maybe historically how did that look? And, and do you see in your, in your work, any change over who gets to give those labels today? Is it still the same? That's a really good question. And before I go into that, though, I did want to comment for a minute, because I think there's this whole area of kind of hidden identities where people work really hard to pretend to be who they're not, to metaphorically dye their hair. So as not to be stigmatized. And that in and of itself is really hurtful because that's so much extra effort you've got to go to to hide who you really are, like perhaps somebody's sexual orientation or gender identity, or, you know, pretending that you don't come from a really poor background when you do. So there's that's a whole other kind of way that stigma hurts people. But historically, yeah, people in power are the ones who get to decide who the out group is, who the, who the people who are stigmatized are, who are identified through these negative stereotypes and these assumptions. And historically, we see a lot of it in medicine. I think particularly the area that I know best is people with mental illnesses. You know, and way back in the day, mental illnesses and spiritual illnesses were seen very similarly. So people were identified as being possessed or being witches and horrible things were done to them as a result of that. You know, they were tortured. Later on, as the world became more medicalized, they were then institutionalized and provided with treatment that was also particularly horrific. One of the things I think that shocked me the most when I started learning about the history of people with mental illnesses is that the first psychiatric hospital in London was called Bethlehem Hospital, but they shortened it and they called it Bedlam. And that's where the word bedlam comes from. And so on Sundays, bedlam was open. And for a penny, you could go and you could look at the mentally ill people like you could go to a zoo. Um, And so this less than human group that was so other that you could pay an entrance fee and stare at them was part of that. Throughout history, I think medicine has been a really big place for labels. We diagnoses are in a sense labels and can be more or less pejorative. And then as we move into the 19th and 20th and 21st century, the media becomes more and more powerful. Everything from films, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the one that always bothered me the most was Silence of the Lambs and the Hannibal Lecter, cannibal, mentally ill person. Every episode of SBU seems to have somebody with a mental illness doing horrible things. So there's all of this media even with events that happen, you know, crazed killer does blah, blah, blah. So the media becomes a really powerful way of pushing stereotypes. And there was a survey done a while back 
maybe maybe in around the 2000s. So it's been a little while now, but it showed that about 74% of people interviewed said, oh, I get the most of my medical information, health and mental health information from the media. So it's incredibly powerful. People aren't learning about this from reliable sources. And I think that's a big thing that we need to change. Yeah. And, you know, we're hoping to have some you know, take that power back for good mm-hmm. <laughs> um, by having these conversations and by inviting uh, military members and, and family members to come to be able to speak and tell their stories. I think individually, we need to hear from people. As a reporter myself, I know the power of a headline, and that is more and more um, sensationalized to get a reader to stop scrolling instead of you know, when it was a, a piece of paper and they just, they had already purchased that newspaper. So no problem. You've already got the reader. But now we definitely do use those those terms, those labels to catch the attention. And it's not necessarily observed of how, how that impacts individuals. So we know that stigma is, I, I heard in your, in your talk that it's both felt and experienced kind of like a individually and corporately. And it's really hard to pin down. It's one of those topics that you might understand that it exists, but it's hard to, to understand. And so when someone might be internalizing stigma, what would that look like as far as uh, we know we're talking schizophrenia? Well, chances are a military member might not have schizophrenia, but they might have ADD, or they might have, you know, another thing that they could hide about themselves, mm-hmm. but they are internalizing that difference. Right. What does that look like for that right. person? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a really good point, because I think that can be incredibly pernicious. So for example, you've got somebody who's got a learning disability, but the stereotype that goes with that is that they're stupid. So they hide the learning disability, but inside they've internalized this idea that they've been told all their lives that they're stupid. So that means they might have some avoidant behaviors. Maybe I don't apply to college because I'm stupid. I've got a learning disability. And it's something that they might've been able to do, but they're avoiding that because of the internalized stigma or they expect rejection. And so they isolate themselves as a result, or they do a lot of pretending and overcompensating, but this you know, this little voice inside of them that says, well, what society says about me really is true, becomes something that limits their life dramatically. There's, there's actually been studies that show that if, and again, I know this is the work with mental illness best, somebody with a mental illness meeting someone else has the assumption that they're going to be rejected. And so they aren't as warm, they don't make as much eye contact, they're more hesitant. Well, then of course the other person's not as warm back. The person with the mental illness goes, see, I knew it, they weren't gonna like me anyhow. And it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. So the internalized piece becomes really difficult. The individual external piece is painful because, um, you know, I'm, I'm rejecting somebody because of some identification that they've got. And then there's the structural piece where I don't, as an individual, have to say, you can't live next door to me. You know, we had redlining for that. Redlining for that. And that was a structural 
issue. And even though redlining doesn't officially exist anymore, we have generations of people who were African-American who couldn't buy houses in certain neighborhoods or couldn't buy houses at all, which means that the generational wealth that people who didn't have that experience could build, they don't have. And so it's still differential power issue, even though there's nothing, I'm not doing anything bad to you as a person. So like you said, you're, it is both felt internally, you then put your feelings of stigma on other people, you extend that feeling of stigma or that labeling to mm-hmm. other people. And then it's that corporate feeling where we behave differently as a society, as a culture, because we are either in or outside of those groups. I know there is one example that often comes up when it comes to labeling and because it was quite literally, the Jews were labeled during the Holocaust. And we can definitely talk about that. And and that's what we, we feel like that's a very extreme example of stigma. But I guess my question for you, since most people are familiar with the story of, of the Holocaust, how extreme do you feel like it is? Do you think that there's modern versions of that, that people might not see? You know, it's easy to put our eyes of uh, looking back at history and say, oh, you know, of course we wouldn't have done that. Or, or of course that's so extreme. Right. You know, I think that there are modern ways that this plays out. And maybe what do you think those are, if there are any parallels. Well, and I think, you know, when we look back at something as horrific as the Holocaust, we think, well, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have participated. I wouldn't have let that happen. I would have been protesting. But if you think about it, all over the world, there's still tribal racial ethnic genocides that are happening. Think about Eritrea and Ethiopia right now. So even on that scale, horrific things are happening that we to varying degrees are aware of and intervening in. And then there's the more subtle kinds of things. One of the other things that happens when you've internalized stigma is you don't want to be identified that way. So you don't seek help. Say if your stigmatizing condition is a physical illness or a mental illness or something, you don't go for help because you don't want to be identified as, oh, you know, there's Anna, there's a car parked in front of the mental health center. She must be crazy. You don't go get treatment. One of the examples I can think of today where that plays out, again, from what I know, is research has shown that people with schizophrenia, on general, have a lifespan that's 20 years shorter than the rest of us. And some of that has to do with the side effects of medication that they have to take. Some of it has to do with the fact that healthcare is really difficult. They're afraid of doctors. Some offices won't take them. Has to do with the poverty that they experience, the difficulty in finding safe housing so that the health disparities get worse and worse and worse. So stigma is a huge factor in people literally dying 20 years earlier. And there's lots of different examples like that. Yeah. So it's the compounding effect of one area of stigma where you're not getting the help that might be quite available to you. And especially with the military, the military has an abundance of resources. And our organization at Partners in Promise did, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is we surveyed our population and asked, are you participating in this program that is providing resources for your family member who has some form of special need, whether that's medical or um, educational? And 
many of them indicated that they didn't. And the reason that they cited was stigma associated with the program itself, asking for help, and also possible career implications that were assumed if they did step forward and participate in this program. So it is alive and well in the military community. But you know, one of the really great things I, I really loved about your work is that it always it moved towards solutions as well. It's not just talking about the history and the atrocious past behaviors, but there were solutions and, and research done to give people tools to kind of combat this. So can you kind of go over some of those? Sure. When you look at people researching fighting stigma, the work seems to fall into kind of three big categories. The first is protest. And we've seen, I think, particularly the past few years that protests can be incredibly powerful in heightening awareness about stigma, discrimination, and injustice. It's a two-edged sword because it can cause a backlash and people can end up being more angry at the folks who are protesting and demanding their rights. So while protest Everyone has the right to it, and it's really important. It's not going to change the world by itself. Another set of strategies has to do with education, so that you educate people about how wrong the stereotypes are, so that you tell people that you know someone with a mental illness is much more likely to be a victim of crime than the general public, and much less likely to commit a crime than the general public, as opposed to what we think of thanks to SVU and, story, and shows like that. So that education can be helpful also. Um, but with education, one of the things that's been shown is you have to be really careful about how you present it, because if you sort of emphasize the biological inevitability of whatever it is that you're talking about, that can be heard as, well, that's hopeless. That person can't ever change you know, if they have a disability, for example. So people can get written off. So education in and of itself isn't going to do it either. The one that seems to be the most powerful is social contact. And particularly social contact where the person who is stigmatized is in a setting where they are seen as an equal and where there is interaction and preferably some kind of a task together. I was involved with and then did a project that was really powerful in that sense. Years ago, um, when I was teaching, I invited a group of people that I knew from around the state who were identified, self-identified as people with mental illnesses who were mental illness advocates and had 10 of them come and invited 10 of my Masters of Social Work students to spend the day together working on how do we work together to fight stigma. And it was incredibly powerful because what started happening was people with mental illnesses were telling their stories and then students started telling their stories and everybody's been discriminated against or stigmatized somehow. So what you got was this common vulnerability and then this common planning from a place of, oh yeah, we're all in this together. And it was phenomenal. And we had students come up afterwards and go, you know, I never thought I wanted to work with people with serious mental illness, but this is my career right now. This is what I want to do. So that kind of 
social interaction where people are vulnerable and where they do something together and see each other as human is where the change happens. And, you know, we like to say in the, within the military, it's a really great cross section of the larger population of our country. Mm -hmm. We have an opportunity in the military community to find those intersections of different backgrounds, different experiences. And so by talking about stigma and, and kind of bringing it to the forefront of our conversation, we really hope to start generating some of these conversations. And, and right now we're starting to get back into, well, at the time of our recording, everything's opening back up and we're really excited to be able to see people face to face. But for now, um, our series is going to allow folks to hear and listen to the stories of people who have been victims of both internal stigma, how it's felt, as well as larger stigma where it's that corporate feeling. So we're really excited about this series and that you were here giving us that professional insight into how we can not only learn about stigma, but how we can combat it as individuals and as a group. And I just want to kick it back over to you and, and ask if you have anything else to share or any other work that you have that you think would really give people the tools that they need to help move this conversation forward. Well, there's there's a lot of really good stuff out in the literature. Um, Patrick Corrigan is a guy who's done work for years in this area. And after we're done here, I'm more than happy to send you some of those resources. But if I could kind of share one last thing, I just want to share a quote with you from a man named Irvin Yalom, who's a psychiatrist. And this book is from a book called Love's Executioner that's from like 1989. But for me, it summarizes a lot of it, particularly as a helping professional. And he says, we simply cannot cluck with sympathy and exhort people to struggle resolutely with their problems. We cannot say to them, you and your problems. Instead, we must speak of us and our problems because our life, our existence, will always be riveted to death, love to loss, freedom to fear, and growth to separation. We are, all of us, in this together. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Shea. I really appreciate you coming and helping us. And that is an amazing quote. I'm just going to have to, I have to pull that one up and read it. We're going to put that in the show notes for everyone to digest because it's a big one. But thank you so much for joining. If anyone is interested to learn more, we're going to put some more information in our show notes so you can learn more about the research that we're talking about today and the work of Dr. Shayat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Jennifer. If you are experiencing feelings of shame as a result of stigma, know that you are not alone. There are resources available to you. This could look like contacting your military inspector general in case of systemic issues or seeking free counseling services via Military OneSource online or by calling them at 800-342-9647. Want to share your disruptive story? Contact us at info at or visit us on our website at thepromiseact.org.